Hello, photography lovers, and welcome to the last part of our interview with Brian. I know that you're eager to hear it, but let me tell you before that, what are the highlights from the show and what is the show exactly? You're listening to the Fashion Photography Podcast with me, your host, Virginia, and this podcast is provided to you by the gorgeous editor, George. We covered a lot of topics in the previous parts of our interview with Brian. You can all find them on photographypodcast.net. But today we'll be talking about retouching images and how to avoid that. We talk a lot about light because I know this is a topic that you're all very excited about. So Brian is sharing about his light setups and how he does his lighting in a way that feels really natural. Another tip that he's going to share is how to imitate window light. And as I said, I know how much you want to hear this podcast. So yeah, it's time for a podcast. I think it's really cool that you mentioned this code of the photojournalism, because right now your work is not exactly photojournalism, but you're still following this code. And I find it fascinating. Why have you made this decision? Well, when it's New York Times, I don't mess around there. Like I, <laughs> no retouching. I'm, it's not worth it to make an image look a little bit better just to mislead the reader. Even if it's something as minor as like removing a zit. If that zit's there, it needs to stay there <laughs> or a pimple. So that's the truth of the scenario. And with my commercial work, I don't necessarily follow that. I will retouch again. But I don't overdo it. I like to keep it feeling natural. So it's nice that you say it looks like I'm following that code of ethics. But in reality, it's a lot of my commercial stuff is retouched just to a degree that still feels real. Mm -hmm. I love photos that can feel like fantasy and, and have an element of surrealism. But I want that element to be in the lighting or in the set design or just the overall mood, I never want to get surreal with my processing mm -hmm. where the subject's eyes are this crazy emerald green, the skin tone is there's no wrinkle anywhere. That to me is not all that interesting. Have you ever had demands from the celebrities that you definitely have to fix something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. A lot of times older folks will request that like oh you got to take out my extra chin or get rid of these wrinkles and i say i'll do what i can <laughs> <laughs> and with new york times i can i'm i'm bound so but w there's also ways around that like you can pump a lot of light in if you're dealing with a subject and i mm -hmm. love shooting older people older men older women i think they just have so much character in their face but they do you can overexpose a little bit on really blast a lot of light in and it'll help mitigate some of the wrinkles and make people look nice and glowy. Talking about light, tell me, do you always feel like you have to bring a flashlight to the photo shoot? I'd say almost everything that I've shot for the last four years or something has been lit, but I love to light in a way that feels natural. Mm -hmm. So you might be seeing a photo and think like, oh, that's great window light, but chances are I, I probably made that or I put a light outside coming through the window, especially if it's interior. Sometimes if it's outdoor, 
I, I can work the sun in a way that's fun, but most everything interior is lit to some degree. Tell us about the key, <laughs> the little secret on how to make a flashlight to look like natural light, because for many people, this is a real struggle. Yeah. Um, one thing that I do is I love window light, but usually it's not strong enough to get a really clean image. I don't want to have to boost my ISO up to 3200 or I don't want to shoot everything at F1.4. So if there's space, if we're not on the 32nd floor of a building, I'll put a flash outside and blast it through the window and it'll give you a similar feeling to what the sun is doing, but it'll you'll have more power so you can shoot it at a cleaner ISO and with a little bit more depth of field so you can feel the environment. And if that's not working, if there's not a window, a lot of times you can bounce it off a white wall and it'll come back and it'll feel like a window. And those are things that I've kind of figured out or assistants that I work with have really shown me that as well. That is something I can't stress enough is hire assistants who are better than you. There are a lot of assistants out there who work with big photographers and are not booked every day. So if you can get one of them on, they can share what they've learned working with other photographers. And I treat my assistants with so much respect and really defer to them. I don't ever like there to be a weird power dynamic. Mm -hmm. You're working for me, but I really want it to be a collaboration. We're working together and I'm getting paid a little bit more, but I'm also taking the heat if things go badly. And ultimately, I'm carrying the responsibility of the shoot. So I feel like it's justified in that. But the people I work with, I really like. I love getting people who are super experienced and can share what they know. And together, you can make a really cool shoot. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Plus, you've got to keep your energy to direct, right? I've worked around other photographers who are so good about that. Maybe they work with their team full time. That they can just implicitly trust that the team is always making the lighting how it should be. I'm not quite there. I don't even get an assistant for every shoot. A lot of the, some of the smaller editorial stuff I do on my own. And again, this is nerdy, but that Flashpoint or Godox strobes, because I can change the power on the transmitter on my camera, it just has opened the doors for me to do a lot of shoots by myself. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes I'm given a flat rate and I could give away some of that rate to an assistant, or if it's just a quick, easy shoot, I can knock it out on my own and make a little bit more money. So I don't have the advantage of having a full-time team that I work with all the time. So a lot of times I am watching the lighting and directing the assistant, but the best assistants also watch. My favorite guy, if he's not moving a light or holding something, he's watching the monitor over my shoulder. Mm-hmm. And he's going in and making changes on his own. He doesn't have to ask. I just trust him that he's whatever he's doing is going to improve the shot. That's awesome. He's great, but he's always booked. <laughs> well, probably because he's great. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the key on his part to monitor everything because that's what makes him professional. And on your side... <laughs> To just know that he won't be available every time because he's a professional. Yeah. In that list of photographers that I have, I also have a list of assistants. Mm -hmm. I sort of have them ranked by people I like to work with the most. And you just kind of work your way down and see who's available. There are assistants that maybe don't know as much, but 
they're just hard workers. And that's great too. That can go a long way. It depends on what the shoot is. Cause there are a lot of shoots I could handle on my own, but it's just nice to have someone help load in and load out. And then they start picking up what you're doing and what you like. And over time they might become that superstar assistant. Or my hope for an assistant is that they can move on and shoot their own stuff too. That's the goal for a lot of assistants. And I always try to nurture and support that, even if it means me losing a very valuable helping hand. But did you have a helping hand on your photo shoot in India? Yep. I know that you love traveling and you have a whole section on your website. And I'm really interested to hear a little bit more about that. In India, I did. I, I brought my favorite guy. His name's John Brown. He's a really talented photographer as well. And we're friends. We get along socially. We're both skateboarders. And going on a job like that, where you're, it was very tight quarters. It was really, it wasn't like the fashion shoots I go on with J. Crew. Like it was, it was very rough and tumble and in some pretty uncomfortable situations. But I knew he could roll with it and I knew he'd appreciate it. He's not a diva. He can appreciate the kind of grimy way of getting around. And so I love that too, because you have a sense of humor about it. I've done travel jobs before where it's just me and I'm going around and photographing in these foreign places. And at the end of the day, I feel pretty lonely. I've eaten all these meals by myself. I like realized I haven't laughed all day. And when you're working with someone else, you're, you're always making a joke. You're always laughing and it keeps it light. It keeps it enjoyable, even if the content you're shooting is pretty serious. But yeah, that was, that was amazing having him. And that was also, to me, is still photojournalism or at least documentary, but I wanted to bring an element of polish to it. And so I needed some off-camera lighting. And so a lot of what John did was he moved around with a, a big flash on a monopod could really fill in. And so we were able to make images that felt more at home in a magazine than in a newspaper, but still tackled these same serious issues. Tell me how from a photo shoot with Casey Neistat, you end up in India. <laughs> um, I think I might've done the India one before. The uh, The Casey one, that's funny. I That one, I've met Casey a couple times over the years. I knew he was big on the internet, but I had no idea. I'm a little bit too old to really understand blogs. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't even watch television. So the idea of logging on to YouTube to w watch like someone's daily life sounds crazy. So we're shooting Casey and it's like, Oh yeah, this is a cool guy. I've seen him around the scene. He's funny. He's got a fun studio. I didn't think anything of it. I didn't treat it like I was shooting Springsteen or anything, but we did our shoot kind of asked him to do a lot of stuff too. He had a suit on. We're like, oh, yeah, why don't, why don't you skate in the suit? So he did all these cool, crazy things. And then we left and we're just packing up outside. And he had a group of teenage boys at the door of his building. And they said, oh, were you there for the, the shoot with Casey? And we're <laughs> like, yeah, how'd you know? And they're like, oh, we saw you on his, <laughs> his vlog. And I guess Casey was like live streaming elements of it, uh, maybe on Snapchat back then. It was sort of Snapchat era, pre-Instagram stories. Mm -hmm. But they were following him in real time and somehow knew where his studio was and were 
hanging out waiting to get an autograph or probably not an autograph that makes me sound old waiting to get a <laughs> selfie with him and so but i had no idea that people cared that much not to say like casey's very talented he's a great personality i don't know i just that was my first real experience with that kind of viral celebrity and then i ended up having to i i didn't shoot his office i just missed that part of it i was so focused on the portraits Mm -hmm. So I had to knock on his door and go back and shoot his office, which was, <laughs> I just didn't realize he was who he is. But then he got the cover of the magazine and it was kind of like, okay, there's something going on here. And now I'll read about viral sensations in the times and still bewildered, but I do understand there are people who have, are completely in charge of their own media platform, whether it's on YouTube or on TikTok. Mm -hmm. and they have millions of fans without having ever been on national television or in a movie. It's crazy. It's amazing how people can create their own celebrity. You're actually quite big celebrity on Instagram too, right? Mm, that's misleading. You have a huge following. Yeah. And it's a funny thing. I almost sort of resent it in a way. There was a time... I don't want to say early, but like mid Instagram, when they would feature people, mm -hmm. they probably still do it, but you can become a featured user. And for two weeks, you end up on this list. And that list is really just for people who are signing up for Instagram for the first time. And they say, hey, try these people out. There's certain people like, I'm sure you know, Kat in NYC. Mm -hmm. She was on that list a bunch of times in the beginning of Instagram and gained all these followers and then that really helped to multiply it. Now she's like over a million followers and she's very hardworking and very talented. And it's cool to see what she's done with it. But I got featured a little bit later. I want to say like 2014, early 2015. And I was building a nice organic following on my own just from posting regularly and trying to keep up consistent quality of content. I was almost at 10,000 followers. And then Instagram doesn't tell you or anything. You just end up opening your phone one day and you have 20,000 new followers. Like it happens so fast. But the followers are people who are signing up for Instagram for the first time. So if you're thinking in 2014, who are the people that are just figuring this out? And honestly, I think it was like a lot of uh, like housewives in Qatar or grandpas in Malaysia, Instagram was slowly making its way around the globe. And unfortunately, a lot of those people didn't necessarily hang on to Instagram. They maybe started an account and set it up, but I wouldn't see any engagement from them. I went from a, almost 10,000 to 40,000 in that two-week time. And then, of course, it, some of it kind of sloughs off. I ended up losing a few thousand followers. But I, this happened to a number of friends of mine, too. I think you eventually get an email that kind of explains what's happening. And they say, congratulations, you've been selected. We're going to send you a gift bag. Send us your address. And I never got the gift bag. And no one I know did. And they say, recommend um, five other users that you think should also receive this. And so it's a way for it to get passed around in friend circles, right? Mm -hmm. And so I see people that get these these boosts and followers, but it doesn't necessarily match up with engagement. And so 
I think it can ultimately be kind of bad because if you look at someone's likes and you look at how many followers, it's not proportional. Yeah. And I'm really honest about it. If anyone ever asks, it's like my real number would probably be something like I'm sure I would have passed 10,000 now, but it would be somewhere in that range, 10 or 15,000. But if it matched up with my likes and it was a nice proportion, I'd probably feel better about it than having tens of thousands of users who don't use Instagram. Mm -hmm. Do you want to share with us your Instagram? Oh, yeah, sure. At Love Brian. Again, coming off the blog. And my name's Brian with a Y. So you can guys find it in the show notes on photographypodcast.net. And of course, follow him so that we can help him to reach more people than just <laughs> the grandpas in Malaysia. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd love to have more grandpas in Malaysia as long as they were engaged or seeing what they like. But, you know, I am not thirsty for followers. I think for a while, I remember going into a meeting with a client mm -hmm. and they were considering me for a job and there was like maybe a little bit of brand partnership and they asked what my following was. And probably at the time it was maybe 3000. It was still pretty early on. And they were like, Oh, sorry, we need people with at least 15,000 users. And I was like, Oh, weird. Can't believe it's gotten to that. But I think it's moved away as well. And honestly, Instagram is still incredibly useful. I love it for work. I love being able to share my work. I feel like if I do a great post, I do get phone calls for assignments and it is really useful in that way. But in terms of being an influencer, I think that that is a trend that not the best look anymore. You realize that an influencer doesn't always equate with the best quality of photography, definitely not the best quality of a worker. There are a lot of people who can make cool content for their page, but don't know how to, going back to what I said earlier, don't really know how to fulfill a directive or work under deadlines or collaborate with a team of art director and creative director. I'm sure they can figure it out. And it also is just kind of, I only want people to follow me who are really interested in what I do. Otherwise, I don't need it. It's, I still get work even without it. And, and some of my favorite photographers don't really keep up with theirs at all anyway. Probably because they're on TikTok now. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, but I think they're saying I'm in the pages of this magazine or I'm doing this campaign yeah. and that's more important. No, it was just a joke about TikTok, <laughs> but I was really interested. What is your opinion on it? I don't have it. I'm sure I'll suffer for that later. <laughs> I was late to Instagram too. I was shooting almost all of J. Crew's Instagram. Mm -hmm. I think 2013 into 2014. And that's when I signed with an agency. I got selected for PDN's 30, which oh, so sad. PDN, great magazine. I read yesterday that they are, are folding and closing their doors. Oh. But they were a really helpful, educational, informative magazine. And But in 2014, they selected me as one of their PDN's 30. Mm -hmm. From that, I got, I had agencies reach out and I ended up signing with iHeart reps and that agency said, we love your work. We just, you have to have a social media presence. You have to have Instagram. And they're like, we can do it for you or you can do it yourself. And I was like, oh God, if it's going to have my name on it, I might as well do it. So I signed up very begrudgingly, but it was a great decision. It's been a, a really helpful tool. And I love to see what other photographers are doing. Yeah, I think that's so important is to 
to keep up in a meaningful way, not in like a jealous or competitive way, but I really love to see what people are shooting, how they're shooting it, who they're shooting for. And I don't follow many people. It's mostly people I have a personal relationship with, but I do think it's important to know what people I don't know are doing. So I, for the last year, I've had Apple News Plus, and I look at the magazines every month to see mm-hmm. you know, who shot what and what that's looking like. And I think it's just important to, to keep up and stay current and stay relevant. It's okay to have, be influenced and be inspired by other people's stuff and be confident that you can create your own spin on all of it. And it's awesome that we got inspired by you today. <laughs> we know that the next minute we see you on TikTok, it means that your agency have told you it's very <laughs> important for you to be there. So thank you so much for this conversation. For now, we can find you on your website and on Instagram. And I cannot wait to see what's next because your work is amazing. And I'm so glad you've been our guest. Thank you. That was fun. That's all, folks. This was the last part of our interview with Brian. I hope you liked it. And if so, you can share what was the biggest highlight from the interview for you in our Facebook group called Fashion Photography Lovers. Of course, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and, of course, leave us a review if you really, really love the show. Next week, we'll be here with a brand new guest. But before that, don't forget about our Friday episode because I'll be here waiting for you. So just as usual, I cannot wait to see you on Friday.